Hi, we're the Disaster Forecast. You're listening to the Punks in Pubs podcast, and here's our latest song, Safe Bet. If you like what you hear, find us on Spotify, Facebook, and any other streaming platform. Enjoy the show! Bye! Bye!
and everything's okay. Hello and welcome to the Punks and Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I hope this episode finds you in a good place. We've got a fantastic episode coming up uh, with Martin Atkins. But before I start talking about the episode, uh, I'm going to quickly kind of get a bit real with you guys. This week, if you don't know, there was a huge blast in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, a city that is a very close place in my heart. My partner is Lebanese. She has family out there. I've been fortunate enough to have been a guest of that city several times, and it's one of the most warm, welcoming cities in the world. I, I truly love it. I call it my second home. Um, but obviously this week, due to government inept and corruption, uh, there was a huge blast at the docks, which killed 135 people, and that's still rising. Thousands were injured from the blast, and near 300,000 people have been left homeless because if you haven't seen footage of it on social media, it it's just a devastating blast that happened in the city. The the docks are so close to residential areas, and that's why there's been such a high rate of people losing their homes. And I want to try and do what I can, so I'm going to use uh, this podcast and the merch that we create. So this week. Um, 100% of the profits that we sell uh, to you guys, so that's t-shirts, stickers, 100% of those profits will go to a uh, a charity in, in Lebanon, which is a Lebanese food bank that is supporting people who have had their homes ripped away from them. And with, if you didn't already know, Lebanon is going through a dire financial crisis at this point in time. It's a country that is was already on its knees um, with over 1 million Syrian refugees who have fled to the country for safety. Put on top of that, a, a government that hasn't been working for many years and uh, and then you have this explosion. Uh, the people of Lebanon have had it pretty fucking hard <laughs> um, and this blast has just kind of piled on top of it. So I want to try and do my bit that I can for for the country that I call my second home. Please go buy t-shirts. Please go, please go buy stickers. It will um, go on and help people who generally need that help right now. Thanks for listening to that in advance. Uh, let's crack on with episode 61. Episode 61 is me sat in front of my laptop in my studio broom cupboard talking down a camera to the former Public Image Limited, Ministry, Nine Inch Nails and Pig Face drummer Martin Atkins. Martin is sat in front of his laptop in Chicago. Uh, This has been an interview in the making. Uh, I originally planned to talk to Martin back in 2018 but sadly got caught up in uh, notorious London traffic 
and we didn't have the time for the interview. So it was great to catch up with him now. Uh, unfortunately, it just couldn't be in a pub. So if you don't know, Martin still plays in his 28-piece band, Pigface. Yes, 28. Uh, but he's also a lecturer and works on the scene talking about the music industry. So in our chat, Martin explains how bands should be working during the global pandemic. So if you are in a band, this is a must-listen episode for you. Uh, we also talk about Martin's uh, experience discovering punk as a young kid from the West Midlands in the UK. And of course, we talk about Pill. In particular, how much creative control uh, did Martin have and it uh, while working with um, a charismatic, let's just say that, um, a man like John Lydon, and also his relationship with the rest of the band. And he also talks about finally walking away from Pill. Let's just say Martin doesn't hold back. I'll be back as normal at the end of the episode to have a little chat. But until then, enjoy episode 61 with myself and Martin. This is not a fucking spoiled children like no one's gonna tell me to wear a mask oh for f- what this is not the thing to fight about wear a mask it's just yeah yeah, yeah. well so uh, d- have we started this yet no 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 we haven't started i was gonna say i, w- I wanted to give you warnings before we started just chatting because oh, uh, this is interesting as fuck we should this we should be t- yeah let's start shall we start all right then, let's start then yeah i mean Honestly, and I'll I'll tell you some stuff that's been happening. I think if if uh, well, I will talk about it once we start. Okay. Well, I'll I'll start now then. We are doing this by the internet, as everything is nowadays, and um, down a a laptop somewhere um, in American Chicago is my guest for this episode, uh, Martin Atkins. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm very good, thank you. Very good. As I was saying uh, a bit ago. Things are absolutely mad here, absolutely bonkers, um, unexpectedly so, uh, in a really good way, and uh, it's keeping me going. It's keeping me going because we we were we actually spent about fifteen minutes chatting, and we were like, oh fuck, we should probably uh, stop recording this. Um, and we were, we were talking about the fact that um, we were talking about COVID and how it's impacting us as as humans. And I said that I think there's going to be a a lasting impact on our, our mental health because as humans we would we've never been in a period where we actually can't touch hug feel each other and um, at that point we were like let's start hit and record what was your thoughts on that then because obviously as a, you were talking about a story about you had so many people on stage with you the idea of that happening again just seems like so far away well so yeah i mean if if anybody listening is in a four-piece band and like 
ooh, we can't go play wherever you will be going to play. Oh, yeah, boo-hoo. I've got a 27-piece band with eight drum kits. You know, I, I there's a mirror ball, cl- like almost symbol height, that I have on a framework around my kit, which I punch. I just punch the fuck out of this mirror ball. So I, like, <laughs> damage my hands and bleed all over myself, spit in the air, sweat. You've got eight drummers. We allow the audience to join us on stage. Pigface is a very uh, uh, open-armed thing. Uh, I just saw a video of the show uh, at the end of the tour in 2019. I go around the stage hugging everybody before I get off the stage. I mean, what a fucking COVID nightmare that would be. Uh, <laughs> but, but never mind your four-piece band, anybody's four-piece band being on stage and going into a venue – I can't put 27 people on stage. I can't put 17 people on one bus, right? But but so here's the thing. And whereas, I don't know, The Jam comes to mind as a band that kind of stands there and does their songs. Maybe that's a bad example. I don't know. Pigface is a band that like sprawls around, crawls all over each other and into the audience. And the the, the line between anything is blurred. So if anybody has reason, with 42 cancelled shows this year, if anybody has reason to to lament uh, a situation, it will be me right now. However, if I put my fucking punk pants on, my big boy punk pants, and look, try and look beyond the things that can't happen, there are all kinds of possibilities. So I launched free touring classes. You know, I wrote a book about touring, uh, which became a, a bestseller uh, like 16 years ago. And that was the first class that I started to teach. So I just with everybody on lockdown, I thought, oh, fuck it. I'll launch a, a class. How much should it be? Nothing. Should it come with a copy of my book? Yes. How much should the book be? Nothing. Right. So I wanted to do something. And so 107 people signed up almost immediately. So I, I created another wait list. Uh, almost 100 people signed up on that wait list. So I launched a third wait list with no advertising. And I think there's 37 people on the third wait list. And, uh, and here's the thing that I'm getting to. After class on Monday, you know, I, I put where everybody's from on a map using a program called Z-Maps, Z-E-E Maps. You just throw in everybody's zip code and dots appear on a global map. We've got people from New Zealand, Australia, Chile, El Salvador, Netherlands, Germany, UK, Canada, US, South America, uh, Santiago, Chile. I mean, holy fucking shit. And so instead of presenting my slides as a lecturer might, um, we, we did a Zoom meeting where you see everybody's on the screen like the Brady Bunch, right? We chatted for an hour. After class, and like, oh, here's an undertaker looking for a career change, you know, and like um, uh, somebody who works in the adult industry in Las Vegas looking for a career change. And then this whole network of people start like, hey, should we start like a separate Facebook, private Facebook group for everybody so we can all talk to each other, not just in the chat on Zoom? And it's like, holy fuck. Mm. And so, so now – one, one of the reasons I'm busy is, so now I do a class on a Monday night, but because there are people from New Zealand, Australia, Chile, blah, 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 Germany, 
I do a class early Saturday morning to allow people a choice if they're busy, if they're making money anywhere, fuck my class, join in the next one, you know. So just, it's a crazy amount of work, but there's potential. So I would say to myself as the, the band leader of Pigface, it's a mistake to try and recreate that energy. Like even three cameras punching a mirror ball, spitting in the air and bleeding. Yeah, you don't smell the blood. I don't actually spit on you. It's You're not jumping up and down with somebody sweating in the mosh pit. It's a mistake, I think, to try and recreate that. But what can we do, given the current situation, that can be 110% effective? And the before show and the after show could be more effective than the before show and the after show at a live concert. So after the, the, the show in Chicago, December 1st, I mean, I was in my bunk, exhausted, bleeding, crying from the pain. I'm fucking 61. Um, you know, ibuprofen, uh, Pedialyte, trying to not go into cramps. And, you know, as I said, just crying into my bleeding hands, trying to get it together. And if 20 people had come to me, we'd love to chat. I, I, I can't chat. I'm exhausted. I can't really speak. But using Zoom, I can have a two-hour conversation with a bunch of people from all over the world who and, and people who might – there's always people who are like, oh, I saw you play with Pill. I saw you on the ministry tour. I saw you do this thing. And you walk past me. I wish I'd said hello. I'm like, for fuck's sake, why didn't you say hello? You know, but, but we can talk for two hours on a Zoom. Yeah. So, and then when we do play live again, maybe that person will be like, Martin, it's me, handle name, crazy bastard from <laughs> Australia, you know, oh, fuck, crazy bastard. And so we can use Zoom to, to leapfrog our shyness and make connections that will, that will stand the test of time, I think. But as I said, if you're trying to recreate, going back to my days with Pill, the amount of low end coming off Wobble or Pete Jones bass that would go out into the audience at high volume. It was a physical experience that frightened people. It would make your nostrils flare to experience such high volumes of ultra low end. Yeah. We're not going to do that on a laptop. So don't even try to do it. Do something else. Have a conversation. Just do something else that you can succeed at. And then when we come out of this, I think it's going to be permanently changed. Yeah. Uh, like uh, there'll probably be a Zoom session before we go on stage. You know, we start the show behind screens. Maybe we'll be Zooming with people like, hey, you know, with a laptop, Zooming behind behind the screens with people and cameras on stage, just live broadcasting shit. Um, it's going to change. I, I think the mistake is I see people going, when this is over, I'm really going to... No, 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 no. If you're not doing what you what you can be doing now, you're fucking up. Because when, when it is over, it will be like a sale at Walmart, right? That when they open the doors, people are going to get trampled. There'll be so much going on that if you haven't found, reinforced, delighted your during this time, you won't have one when it's over. You've kind of touched on your lecturing. We're going to come back to that in a second. But I think people listening to this will probably best know you as a drummer for um, Pill. 
But your CV is like jaw dropping, really. I mean, you've already spoken about Pig Face, but you've got Ministry, Killing Joke, Nine Inch Nails, Brian Brain, which, by the way, for a dyslexic, trying to say Brian Brain when you see it is like Brain Brain and it fucks with your head. Um, Good. <laughs> also, you've got your own label, you're in a recording studio, you're also in a recording studio, you spoke about your books. And one of your books was Welcome to the Music Business, You're Fucked. So I kind, of, I kind of guess my question would be, why have you spent so much time working within the music industry, putting in so much effort and money when you already know the industry's fucked? Just because it's fucked doesn't mean that you can't operate within it. You know, one of the reasons I called that book, Welcome to Music Business, You're Fucked, is that I think we could do a survey of all of the... Um, of all of the music industry books, right? And the titles are usually cash now, you know, <laughs> cash blowjobs and drugs tomorrow. You know, like there's one called uh, money success and fucking, I don't know. And all the S's are dollar signs, which I think is hilarious. Um, there's so many get rich quick books that it just seemed like there should be one like little cautionary tale. You know, plus it's a fantastic T-shirt. Uh, when I <laughs> when I'm down at South by Southwest, people stop in the street for that T-shirt. a bit more about kind of your upbringing because you, you grew up in Coventry, post-war Coventry at that. Nuneaton. Longeaton, okay. Um, Nuneaton with an N, it's 10 miles from Coventry. Oh, okay, my bad. Uh, because well, the, no, no, it's the same thing, kind of. <laughs> I mean, what I wanted to get at though was it was a kind of, for the people who don't know, uh, that city was bombed to fuck during the Second World War. And yeah. you grew up in a period in post-war whereabouts it was... It was very grey. It was it was nothing really inspiring. But then it seems to be that the industry itself got a boom from Indians and Pakistanis and the Caribbean immigrants coming to the city and kind of bringing this life and music with it. Did you feel that at the time? Uh, well, no, but but I did eventually. Yeah. So, so I was born in Nuneaton. We moved to Leeds, then from Leeds to Durham, and then then. Uh, I left home and I eventually moved to London where I joined PIR. In 2000, um, I was back in Nuneaton. Um, I moved my studio over there. We had our first kid, a second kid. I have four boys now. And um, so um, we, we were there for a few years. And during that time, I, and of course, I was the, the influx of Indian culture, but more so when I was there in 2000, um, just walking around here, all of this Indian influence, you know, you go walking around and eating and you'd hear all these, all these fucking, I'm like, Oh fuck. I want to slam a compressed bass drum, snare drum, limited loop across this bubbling acoustic, uh, human, uh, Indian vibe loop, you know? 
So it's just, it's just weird just to connect that stuff. I'm doing this free series of events at a club uh, in Massachusetts called Once, and the partner of the woman who owns it, the guy's from Corner Shop. It's like, how weird is that? That's yeah. amazing. For me, when I'm talking about punk, I can't imagine a world where there wasn't what a music form that was called punk. Uh, I mean, I can look at artists predated, like, say, Johnny Cash, and look at songs like Helter Skelter by the Beatles, which are probably has, like, kind of tinges of punk sound in it. Um, but for you, when you were growing up, when was the first time you heard a band that you would probably call punk? I don't want to pre-guess, but like MC5s and the Stooges, like was that kind of something that you heard and you went, "Oh, that that's crazy." No, well, no, because so I grew, I started playing drums when I was nine, so that was fifty years ago, and fifty years ago, the whole attitude of everything was the fastest guitarist the fastest, most amazing, technically accomplished drummer. You know, it was all about technical ability and practice, 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 which I did. You know, I joined my first band when I was 11, started backing strippers in the north of England when I was 12. Um, but it was all about playing constantly and aspiring to that Billy Cobham, Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, Ginger Baker level of, of performance. So all I was listening to Kind of until I think for me the the bang mm. was a band from the north called Penetration. Uh, I think right, and that was because um, the drummer in Penetration was the brother of a guy I was in a rock band with, and it was kind of like my silly non-talented brother plays drums in this crazy punk band, you know. And suddenly, Penetration started to become fairly big. And um, and I went to see them because it was this guy in a band. I was in his brother. And I remember being uh, at, the front of the, at the front of the audience at some university, you know, where I, I wanted to wave to the, like, hey, remember me, you know, I'm in a band with your brother. Next thing I know, I'm all the way in the back of the room over by the mixing console. And just as I'm kind of like, what the fuck's going on here? I'm back down the front. I mean, it was absolute mayhem. And I think after that moment, it's like, oh, fuck. You know, it was easy for me to say, fuck the mainstream. Fuck technical ability. Because I had technical ability. By the time I got into punk, 16, 17, I remember listening to White Riot at that time. Devo were punk. Mm. The Police were punk. You know, Roxanne was a punk seven-inch. The Cars were a punk band. What, what? Do you remember that? Were you around for that? I wasn't around for the Cars, no. They're a fucking pop band. I mean, uh, uh, Joe Jackson, who was a balladeer. Elvis Costello, like acoustic ballads, really. <laughs> You know, was like, oh, Elvis Costello, punk, because he signed to Stiff. You know, it was just different. Oh, my God. And so I moved to London. And oh, my fucking God, that was a revolution. And also back at that time, in time now, 2020, all genres of music are fully happening all the time. There's a goth night somewhere. There's an industrial dance thing. There's a jam collective. There's a, there's a, a, 
there's everything all the time. Back then, it felt like there was one main thing happening that emerged, peaked, and then died when the exploited released Punk's Knock Dead, which I think might have been 81. I mean, I just laughed. I'm like, well, yes, it is. It fucking is. Right. I mean, it still isn't. And the idea isn't. But having Punk explode from 76 onwards, by 81, it certainly felt like it was dead. So during that time then, between the period of, of 76 and 81, you were in London. Were you, were you like purposely like, right, punk is, I want to play in a punk band. That's the band I want to play in. Or were you still like, I, I enjoy punk, but it's not my style of drumming. So why would I fuck with that? No, that never occurred to me. I, I think that we just, we would go to gigs all the time. Uh, I worked for the government just off Trafalgar Square in St. Martin's Lane. Bags of speed all the time. Um we go down to Dingwalls. I saw you 2 play to 17 people. Um, uh, we just go and see all of these fucking bands all the time. Big um, Machine was back then, which be- I don't know what it became. Camden Palace, maybe? I don't know. But they had this scheme, which I thought was pretty smart. Where as you walked in on a Monday for the one pound, like, whatever the fuck it was, they give you like 10 tickets and it will be like, two pounds off the 10 pound ticket for Joe Jackson or 75 pence admission on a Tuesday. They really did a good job of promoting their slow night. Kind of just encouraged you to go out all the time, which is what we did. I didn't know that I wanted to join a punk band. Um, I joined this band called the hots with Pete Jones, who ended up playing with Brian brain and then PIL. Um, and we did our own songs. Um, I started to record the first Brian Brain single uh, called They've Got Me in the Bottle. Um, but but that was punk. Um, we recorded in the same studio that Cliff Richard recorded We Don't Talk Anymore. And we just snuck in after the sessions and used all the instruments and left at six in the morning. <laughs> you know, um, but, but we weren't consciously being being punk. We'd absorbed punk. I think we were being post-punk yeah. then. Um, and Pill was certainly, I mean, fucking hell. The first time I heard uh, First Edition, uh, and you hear the, the opening bass, I was actually walking down the steps to the, onto the main floor of the music machine, and I heard do-do-do-do-do, you know, wobbles bass. The hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. I mean, it's like, oh, fuck. So exciting. What an exciting time. So you kind of already were a fan before you start joining the band then. So when you go to kind of audition for the band, was it a case of fanning out a little bit or was it, I've got this, I, I, I'm fine? Um, well, no. So I, I was, before I moved to London, I, I went down to London for some auditions, just called up a bunch of the ads at the back of Melody Maker. I went down and just as I was about to leave after five days in London, I didn't have any money left. My dad had arranged a ride for me with my drum kit to go back up north. And, and I opened Melody Maker on a Wednesday, came out everywhere else on a Thursday, but London, you could get it on a Wednesday. And there was an ad in the back, drummer required for a band with rather well-known singer. I'm like, oh, that's fucking John's new thing, I bet. Because um, the pistols had, had died. And I called the number and it was, hello, Virgin Records. I'm like, oh, fucking hell. And uh, the auditions for Pill, the, you know, where Jim Walker got the job, 
with that Friday. And I said, no, I've got, I'm, I'm your guy. I've been playing for a decade and I'm, but I'm leaving tomorrow. Can I come and have an audition? They're like, no, I can't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, and I went back up, up to North of England and I thought, well, that was fucking stupid. That was an opportunity there. I, I made a mistake. I should have borrowed, begged, whatever, stayed down there for two more days and got that job. And so, um, I spent a year and a half, maybe two years in London, just reading music papers. And I mean, Pill went through, I want to say eight drummers before me. Yeah. Um, Richard Dudansky, Carl Burns, somebody else, somebody else. They set Carl Burns, ironically, on fire. After a while, I, of course, I had the Virgin Records phone number. I started talking with Jeanette Lee. I got to know Jeanette's mom. I mean, it was just, yeah, uh, absolutely fanboyed out. In the same way that when I joined Killing Joke, I'm like, we've got to play fucking war dance, love like blood, 80s. I used to get into fights with those guys all the time because they wanted to play obscure songs that nobody had fucking heard. And I would be always wanted to please the fans, but please myself as well, you know. With Pill, you've already kind of touched on like how it kind of, the band messed with sound and kind of played around with the instruments. I mean, how did you find that creatively? Was that very much, this is what John's vision was and everyone else kind of had to play around it or were the band able to kind of put their own stamp on it? There are so many misconceptions about this time period. And I think because John is a powerful, charismatic front man, I think a lot of journalists would say, what was your vision for this album? Mm. And because Keith Levine was a guitar player, you would think the singer and the guitarist had a vision and they tell the drummer and the bass player what to do. Well, certainly there wasn't a bass player on the Flowers of Romance. The actual situation was that I'd go into the studio on time. Nobody else is there. Nick Lorne is there. And I'd be like, hey, Nick, uh, I've got this idea. Um, I don't, can you see my screen, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see screen, yeah. So you can see behind me, right there, is the Mickey Mouse watch yes. that I took to the studio. And I said, listen, I'm, I'm out of my mind on speed. And every night I fall asleep listening to this Mickey Mouse watch I bought on the Pill Tour at, at Disneyland. And I can, I can hear all these rhythms inside of it. I want to record, I want to play drums along to that rhythm, which you got to say that's kind of industrial as fuck um, playing along to the rhythms inside of a watch. And instead of telling me to fuck off, you know, wait till, wait till Keith gets here. Oh fuck. Put it on top of this floor, Tom, Tom, it will resonate. I'm going to put two mics on it. I'm going to put it through this harmonizer. I'm like, Oh fuck. And so there's Nick Lorne instead of, I mean, he was as engaged thrilled, delighted, and insane as I was. He and I put together four enclosed walls, banging the door under the house. Uh, completely. I think Keith played a synth on one afterwards as an afterthought. John wasn't in the studio, neither was Keith. So you had me having absorbed all of this punk and heavy rock and technical stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and Nick Lorne, 10 weeks into his production engineering career, which still goes on to this day, 
He just produced idols. It's difficult for John to say, ah, I didn't have a very big role in that. He did. He walked into a studio, and to me, this was magic. He walked into a studio and sang Four Unclosed Walls, Banging the Door, all these others, 1981, all these vampire, all these songs that we did during these sessions, fully formed songs over that the created a kind of pop format out of different vocals could have made the music very different. Flowers of Romance was a hit single, you know, um, in the same way that I think Maynard creates structure over the top of accessible structure over the top of tools, uh, uh, deep, deep, intricate arrangements. Um, and I think by asking John, what was your vision for Flowers of Romance and letting him answer as if he had one, you know, it denies what his, the magic of him, you know, I played drums behind him for five years in the same way that I would play behind uh, strippers in the North of England, Newcastle Labour Club. And, you know, of course I'm looking at the stripper's ass or if she turns around, whatever is going in my face. But I, I, the same experience of sitting behind John and looking at one, two, 10,000 people mesmerized by John, magical, charismatic individual. And as for Keith's involvement in an album like The Flowers of Romance, minimal. I, I used to say I knew what room he'd nodded out and fallen asleep in because pattern of the carpet etched in his face, whichever room he'd been in. I saw a picture in Melody Maker where he's got this modular stack of Roland synths, which to my knowledge, he never managed to get one sound out of. In my time in and out of the studio, trying to be constructive, I'm like, oh, hey, let me let me mess with the synth. And the engineer will be like, oh, we haven't managed to get a sound out of it yet. Nobody, nobody knows. But yeah, it's a great photo on in Melody Maker. You know, <laughs> you know, I stayed very busy. Um, uh, Killing Joke, Ministry, Pig Face, my label Invisible released 350 albums, The Damage Manual, Nine Inch Nails, yeah. all this fucking Murder Inc., all this stuff that I did. Um, and whereas Keith hasn't done much. Um, and John has, of course, carried on doing pill, answering these questions and allowing a very different narrative to exist for 30 years.
So as a person who's kind of seen this, and I suppose you're actually in a very unique position, you've kind of spoken about, you're on the drums, so you see everything playing out in front of you. What you've seen is, is, is a truer form of what other people are saying then in their own books. Like, you, you've witnessed it. The other people would have witnessed it in their own little bubble, where actually you're seeing the whole thing play out. So, for instance, in the 1980s, when you went to America the first time, there's a lot of stories about when you're in LA and there's fighting and 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 like the label giving you shit. You're in a better position, I suppose, to to actually go. Well, actually, this is actually what happened. Um, well, <clears throat> no, I don't think so. Um, there's something called a uh, Rashomon, which I think comes from a a Japanese film. I think it might be Akira Kurosawa, who has a murder unfold from four different viewpoints. One of the things I'm doing in my PIL book is acknowledging that all of these different people have their own <coughs> true view of what happened. I think I have a benefit of keeping everything. I have my handwritten diaries, you know, every single day of the tours, notes about what was happening, also lyrics from songs I was writing at that time. I'm also going to other people who were around for their stories, like Larry White, who was managers, Bruce Butler, who was there in, in Australia, uh, crew people, engineers, Nick Launay, Bill, who was a, who a, a New York Nick Launay. Um, I'm getting input from all these people. I actually interviewed Wobble and Keith, uh, and Pete Jones, um, Jeb and Bruni, who was in the last incarnation of the band that I was uh, I left in 85 hmm. just to get their sides of, of these stories. There's a right or wrong. There are some things <laughs> yeah, I think, <laughs> I think Keith said he might have, he enhanced the drums on under the house. Fuck off, man. You, you know, I, you couldn't play a guitar, let alone hone a drumstick, let alone beat the holy fuck out of those drums in legendary studio two at the townhouse where Phil Collins recorded in the air tonight. The truth of that, is known. Sometimes when I do a PIL talk, I'll set up a drum kit and I'll play a couple of those beats. And you just, just like, yeah, no one else is messing with that stuff. When you left Pill, um, was you in the mind frame of, what, like, fuck, I need to find work instantly? Or was it, I'm going to throw myself into Brian Brain and go, I'm going to show them. Like, I'm going to show them that they should have never let me go. Well, they didn't let me go. I left. So I quit Pill. Keith fired me at the end of the first American tour. Then they asked me to come back to work on the Flowers of Romance. And then they took pains to say I was only a session musician. It's like, well, you didn't pay me. I have co-writes on all of that stuff, but you didn't pay me. That's not session musician. Um, and then they asked me to rejoin in New York. And after the biggest selling single they've ever had, This Is Not A Love Song, which I co-wrote and co-produced, uh, I left. I realized that a house in LA, swimming pool, palm trees, Australia, Japan, wherever, hit single. Like, this is fucked. So I quit. And uh, I quit the music business as far as I was concerned. John, at the moment, seems to be going through a very rough time. He's quite open about his, his wife with dementia. H- have you reached out to him at all Like since you've left? And is there an element of you like... I want to, but I just don't know how. No, I do know how. Um, we've had times early. You know, when I left, I said, hey, I'm leaving. But just like happened when Keith fired me, you know, 
I came back and I was obviously capable of, of doing great work in strange circumstances. Call me up. We met in New York. We've had sushi. I've, I've seen him wearing a pig face t-shirt or a sheep on drugs shirt who was signed to my label for a while. Um, but more recently, you know, I made the mistake of reading one of his books where he said I would do anything for a fiver. Um, and that's like, yeah, we'll have words next time we, we speak because that's bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I quit the band at the height of their success. Obviously, money isn't a driving factor for me. He included me in the Public Images Rotten documentary. I think it was ridiculous that Keith Levine, Larry White, Bob Miller were not included um, because I guess their viewpoint, the pre-written script, that it was John's deal, you know? Um and as I work on my book, I reached out to John's manager and said, yeah, John, he just needs a read through to make sure he's, you know, accurate. And I'm like, yeah, of course, if John needs to read through the interview, make it accurate. And it's like, no, he needs to read through your book. I'm like, go fuck yourself. You know, like, you know, your viewpoint has been out there, you know, from anybody who will listen to it without questioning it. And this is going to be my viewpoint of my time in this band. I don't know if this is true. You allegedly fought the psychopath uh, that is Gigi Allen. Like, how the fuck did that happen? And how the fuck did you get out alive? What the hell? So, yeah, after the Flowers of Romance recordings, uh, I get on a plane to come to the States with Brian Brain. I'm bottled in the face in Washington, D.C., 16 stitches, eight subcutaneous stitches. We had to stop the show. Why? Because you were bottled in the face? No, because all the mouths full of blood. I mean, this is fucking 81, right? I mean, mental. Problem in New Orleans because my stitches get infected. Uh, alcohol poisoning in San Francisco. I'm taken to San Francisco General. I'm in hospital three times in 20 days. And then we get to the last night. Uh, we played in Boston, had a night off before coming back to the UK. We were at a place called the Rat Skeller, which is a legendary venue. And with four or five American girls who we made friends with, still friends to this day. And we're talking white Russians. It's like the last night of a crazy tour. I've got stitches in my head. It's fucking crazy. Here comes this band. Fuck you. Fuck this. Fuck that. Fuck your mother. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Fuck your sister. I'm like, all right, you know, come on. And Pete Jones said, I'll buy you a white Russian mine if you're going fucking with me. And this, then we see the beginnings of my entrepreneurship and my skills of negotiation because I'm like, Pete, make it two white Russians and you're on. <laughs> so I have two white Russians. I get up, throw her on the floor unplug the microphone, unplug the bass, unplug the guitar, knock over some cymbal stands and a couple of tom-toms, pick it and throw it onto the singer. And at that point, realize I've gone too far. And I stand there on stage, fans to jump on my back and their fans to jump on my front and give me a good kick in, which I would think well-deserved, right? Nothing happens. People in the fucking screaming, sending me dreams. You know, nothing happens. Two hours and maybe 10 white Russians later, I'm pissing in the toilet. And as I'm pissing, somebody comes up behind me, smashes my face into the wall, breaks my nose. And as I fall back on kicks me in the face and breaks my jaw. 
and that was Gigi Allen. And so when did you find out that that was Gigi Allen then? Was it like afterwards when someone went, oh, that was Gigi Allen? That Later that night, somebody said it's fucking Gigi. He, and he ran about him at the club. And so uh, crazy as it might sound, I was looking for him five years. I don't know that I was actively looking for him, but I wasn't afraid of him. Yeah. Why would I be afraid of him? And uh, although, I mean, logically, I should have been afraid of him, but I wasn't because of the encounter that we had. The pictures of me, my nose is spread across. Oh, what a fucking mess. <laughs> well, I, I, like I said, I just heard that you, you're pushing an interview back and I feel bad about that. Um, so let's kind of wrap up with this then. As, as an academic, you're going around, you're talking about uh, the industry and you're talking about how you can apply it to, to everyday life. What do you think is still the number one thing that people are still doing wrong as musicians when they're starting out or as they've established themselves? How are they still kind of tripping over their own dick? The World Wide Web is fantastic, but people are looking to make global impact. And those metrics of success, chart position, house, car, you know, and it's all I know firsthand. It's fucking bullshit. And um, the things that I'm doing now, connecting with people, um, really simple tasks, reaching out to people locally. And if you want to succeed, I've learned help people. Eventually, you may or may not succeed yourself, but you'll have a better time trying to get there. And the help that we've been given given out to people over the last six months, is it's so fueling to me. And I, I think I've managed to redefine success um, a very different way. Right now we're reaching out across the community. We're doing this stay the fucking side pain. We're printing for about 20 to 25 different businesses across the states, bars, clubs, individuals, entities, raising money for Black Lives Matter and black-run businesses, black-owned businesses now. So this is this is punks in pubs, right? So I don't know if you can see this. I came from a counter with Dark Matter Coffee, who, who make my get-fuck-out-of-bed coffee, right? Um, and they were kind of blindsided by the pandemic and I think froze a little bit. So I came home and I did this. I changed my get the fuck out of bed design to stay the fucking night and started to these very simple brown paper bags that you might have gotten at the sweet shop. And I ended up taking 300 of these bags to Dark Matter Coffee, who paired it with the original bag of my coffee, sold those a piece. That's $15,000 gross help we gave to Dark Matter Coffee. But what I gave to me was just coming home in the midst of this swirling shit where everything's closing down, 42 pig face dates cancelled, and I screen printed 300 fucking bags with water-based ink. It was therapeutic for me. I felt like I was doing good, but I slept well that night because I'm printing these things and hanging them up with clothes pegs to dry in my basement. Tiny little things end up making a really big difference. We've ended up raising about $50,000. Now we do T-shirts, there's buttons. It's punk as fuck. And, you know, uh, I'm connecting with all of these people and helping them and, and making something good and making connections happen. 
in amongst all of this shit. I don't think it's in punk's name to be told what not to do by a label or a pandemic. I mean, of course, you've got to wear your mask. You don't have to be all uh, question authority when it comes to wearing a mask. You know? um, <laughs> that doesn't have to be a punk statement. But you can do stuff. Uh, great things happen when you do stuff. Nothing happens when you don't. So all of this activity then goes back into the presentations I make to other people around the world going, yeah, I don't know what to do either, but I made these bags and it seemed to help these people over there. And then I get to say to Dark Matter Coffee, will you send 50 bags of coffee to these people making masks? Oh, okay. You just do this and you keep it going. And that's punk. I'm so glad that the DIY punk ethic is still driving you forward and, 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 and kind of your vision is still there with, with what you, you grew up with. Martin, mate, thank you so much for your time. I'm very grateful. I know you've got other meetings now. But, yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All the best, pal. Thanks. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. Thank you to Martin for taking the time to talk to me. Links for Martin's free virtual classes they spoke about in this episode are in the episode description of this podcast, as well as links to all the music that we played out. Talking of music, thank you so much to Disaster Forecast for sponsoring this episode of Punks and Pubs. Make sure you go check out their work. If you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast for free, we don't charge for sponsorship. It's our way of giving back to the punk community. Uh, email punksandpubs at gmail.com. Simple as that. Uh, don't forget, go rate and review. Uh, it really, really, really does help the podcast grow. And um, if you can and you've got the money, please go buy some merch and support uh, the Lebanese people at this point in time. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay well, and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.
what you want, this is what you get, this is what you want, this is what you get, this is what you want, this is what you get, this is what you want, this is what you get, this is what you want, this is what you get, this is what you want, this is what you get, this is what you want, this is what you get.